All right, good morning. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. History is full of examples, is it not, of the importance of unity in politics and policy, in war, in products, and in every walk of life, unity is important. We even know that that's true with the founding of our own nation. Remember, it was Ben Franklin who said during the signing of the Declaration of Independence, we shall all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall hang separately. They were doing a bold thing, and it was unity that helped bring to pass what we have and enjoy as our nation today. It's important with stand, uh, standing against a foe or standing against error. It's also for standing for a cause. Unity is the, with the band of whatever is going on will certainly have a major impact on that outcome. From their home in southern Mesopotamia, the Sumerian, excuse me, the Sumerians became one of history's first superpowers. Their empire gradually expanded as far as the Mediterranean Sea. Their cities included Ur, the home of Abraham. Throughout history, they successfully defended the empire from invading raiders and from internal squabbles and rebellions. And for decades, decades they held a position of dominance in the world. Eventually, however, a lack of unity led to their decline. Fighting amongst themselves, the Samaritans, excuse me, the Sumerians quickly faded as a world power. And they are no more today. At the core of any disunity, you will always find some form of human selfishness, ego, or pride. And nowhere else is that more egregious than when it's in the local church. As a people, we are called according to a perfect unity within the Godhead. We are indwelt by one spirit, under one Lord, with one faith, one baptism, one hope. And we are commissioned to be the Lord's witnesses on earth until he comes again. And any division amongst his people tarnishes that witness and dishonors the Lord. Now, by way of review, last week, as we opened the letter of Corinthians, uh, verses 1 through 9, Paul already started addressing several issues that are within the church, but saying that in a sense of what um, he was grateful for in the grace of Christ that has been given us. Selfish derisions and quarrels had manifested themselves within the church and they became very divided on many issues and the impact upon the world was being degraded greatly. So Paul began by reminding us that God's grace, as Joshua shared with us last week, is given to believers to be able to gain, sustain, and to enjoy their calling in Christ. And because of our calling in his name, believers are to live a holy life. Now, we are, as Christians, to be like Christ, then holiness is not an option. It's our destiny. We will remain on earth. While we remain on earth, we will work to accomplish his purposes, and we will work out our sanctification with the work of the Holy Spirit as we do that jointly. He has left us here as his ambassadors, right? And everything that we do reflects upon the Lord. Now, in Paul's introduction in verse 5, he already commented on what the importance of, uh, by the grace of God, what we have is for speech and knowledge, that we have a great testimony of our being in Christ in verse 6. He also talked in verse 7 of spiritual gifts and the revelation that is to come. And all these things are going to be talked about in the letter, as, as Joshua pointed out. 
And in verse 9 closes with the importance of the fellowship that we have with him. And fellowship, though, is not possible without unity. Paul's point is that having been purchased by his blood, we are to behave accordingly. And we are to live up to our calling. And let's begin now by reading verses 10 through 17 of 1 Corinthians. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, oh, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that I do not know whether I baptized another. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now the theme we have of our passage today is that Christian congregations are to be unified in mind and opinion to maintain the priority and impact of preaching the gospel. Now within the context of this letter, because of the way Paul has written it, he is exhorting believers to restore the unity that should be in the church. It was there to some extent, of course, when Paul founded the church, but now he is calling them to restore it and then is giving them and equipping them with how to preserve that in the local body. Now, how are believers to restore and preserve this? And we're going to have four points today on how we can do that. First of all, it's by recognizing why congregational unity is so important. We need to have this as a basis. The first observation is in the size of the letter. You'll notice that there are 16 chapters devoted to this very issue of all the different squabbles and differences and stuff that have been separating people. And it's the most content in anywhere in the New Testament of the importance of having this unity around the faith. The second observation is the tone of the letter. We read in verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word exhort there can be translated beseech in other translations. And it, it comes from the same word parakaleo, which is to comfort, like the Holy Spirit is our comforter. It means, to, uh, he, it means Paul here is making a strong appeal. He's putting his arm around them and saying, I exhort you, brethren. And then he's using the word brethren here, which is also an endearing, loving term. So Paul isn't trying to give them a beating. He's trying to give them a new bearing. And he's trying to do that in a firm way throughout this letter so that he's doing so to bring them to repentance. And instead of appealing to his own authority as an apostle, which he has done on many occasions, Paul here cites the highest possible authority in the matter through the use of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a focus on, on the Lord himself. And to be in the name of the Lord is not really putting just a post-it on your prayer and saying, oh, I said this because Jesus said to. It's about really being engaged with the whole purpose and the unity of who all that Christ is and what his will is. 
So what Paul is doing here is he's making an appeal to say, this is what God wants. Doesn't matter what Paul says. This is what God wants. This is what the Lord wants. And he's saying, in the name of our Lord. So Paul is saying he wants to uh, keep the reputation of the Lord intact. Paul is actually asking the church to not be uh, banished, but to be restored, and for the Lord's sake and for the Lord's honor. Now, we also see that in the order of the letter, now there's going to be 10 things, as you see in the handout there, that are going to be addressed through this letter of conflicts and issues and schisms and whatnot in the church. And the first one is this idea of being in unity with one another. He's going to talk eventually here about uh, additionally servanthood, morality, marriage, Christian liberty, men and women in the church, the Lord's table, spiritual gifts, the resurrection, and money. I don't know what else he left out, but that's just about everything, it seems. Um, and so he's going to be addressing those, but the most important thing is that we start with unity. And the other thing that we can make as an observation here is the affirmation from other scriptures about the importance of this. James tells us in 4 verses 1 through 6, which is kind of a roadmap to disunity. Verse 1 from chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives us a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. At the root of all divisions is sin. It's carnality, it's selfishness, it's uh, pride. Paul tells us also in Romans 16, 17, that we're to stand guard against such dissensions. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Unity is important. And if that wasn't enough, we can turn to John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying to the Heavenly Father. And he says in verse 22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are. I in them and you and me, that we may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. I can't think of anything higher than that, can you? <laughs> the, our God himself wants us to be one with him and that is the importance of unity. And if it's that important to God in heaven, then it's important to his local church. So it must be one of our priorities. 
Now, this unity is also the basis of our relationship with Christ and all that we are to be. We are no longer part of the world, as we know. And everything we do as believers reflects upon Christ because now we are called in his name. It also affects the joy of our, our faith. When we don't have unity, there's no joy in that. I don't, I don't know of anybody that finds joy in disunity. That's a believer anyway, right? The world might find that, but it's a wrong kind of joy. And there's also this great power that comes in sharing the gospel. I mean, one of the reasons the cults are so effective is because of their incredible unity to their propaganda. They, they memorize that stuff and they say it without even understanding what they're really saying because they've never checked out scripture because they're just taking it by rote from those that are pumping it down their throats. But yet people are so amazed. They take a look at the, the Mormon church, for example, and all of its, the, its works and all of its presentation. People are impressed. I mean, look at the choir, right? It's pretty awesome. Um, but they still have the wrong doctrine. They have a different Jesus. But they have such an impact because they are unified. Now, I hate to use a bad example to help us be motivated on a good example, but it just goes to the point here that it really is important. And if we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 20, uh, 46 through 47, day by day, Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together in gladness of sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Unity in the church is extremely important. Now, having recognized this the importance of this, we can also restore and preserve unity as a congregation by recognizing what destroys congregational unity. Now we continue in verse 10. Paul says, I, I'm praying that you all agree and that you have no divisions among you. Basically saying you don't agree and you do have divisions. There's a problem here and this is the core of it and we can't get anywhere until we get into an agreement on some things. Agree here literally means to have the same words. So there were vocal expressions of what was going on in the, in the divisions. And the division, word divisions here means to be like schismatic. It means to tear. It means to rip apart. Okay? It can be used to express something physically being torn apart as in a garment or a document. And metaphorically it means more to be split in meaning or opinion. So this, in this context... Um, having both opinions and verb, words in harmony and in unity is what's important. And they're both in what we call the present tense in the Greek. That means that there is no time beginning and end to this. It's ongoing. You are constantly doing this, uh, either in the uh, way in the past or presently, or you, it looks like you're going to continue to be doing it in the future. You are doing this. It's just a statement. It's not good. Paul is saying no murmuring is allowed. Don't be sharing your descending opinions with others and in a way that leaves questions and factions. You know, it really comes down to how do we deal with our differences because we all have them. We're all still in the flesh. We're still growing in the faith. We're still growing in the word. We're going to have differences. But do you, you ask questions simply to have a sincere understanding of a good answer? Or are you asking questions that cause and just stir up thoughts that want to create factions and cliques. You know, I, I, I love the example, I've shared this before, of the difference between Zechariah and Mary when the angel appeared to them. 
You know, Mary said, Lord, how can this be? Like, I want to know, right? How does Zachariah do it? <laughs> oh, this can't, how does this, how can this be? You know, there's a difference in the attitude. And so what are, how are we dealing with our differences and our, our not incomplete understandings? You know, heaven forbids that there be any outright protests. That has happened in churches too. But if we genuinely, genuinely have a differing opinion, then we should take it up the chain of leadership. And we'll get into more of that. Um, so how do the Corinthians' differences in opinion and words manifest themselves? Well, they were basically forming on the focuses, uh, they were focusing on the merits of men and losing focus on the Lord. Verse 11, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Well, who's Chloe? Uh, we don't know. This is the only reference to this name. Uh, could be, and was more, more likely that it was a believer that was in the Corinthian church and had somehow come, or in you know, their travels, had crossed paths with, with Paul um, at a later time. It's likely somebody that Paul knew when he founded the church, and so he knows of the reputation of this person and is willing to believe their report. So we don't know anywhere beyond that, but Paul gets the message, and he says in verse 12, Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I'm of Apollos. Oh, but I'm of Cephas, and oh, I'm of Christ. Right? So perhaps they were focusing on the various excellencies of these different leaders, gifts, ministries, attainments, whatever. Paul and Apollos and Cephas are Christ, and they're forming these cliques that were spoken openly against each other and looking down on others. In many ways, you could just say they were saying, well, my pastor's better than your pastor. Oh, no, 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 mine's better than yours because, you know, they're getting into these little debates. You know, we could look at Paul. Why would anybody want to say, well, I'm of Paul? Well, he founded the church. <laughs> I'm with the guy. I'm with the original dude, right? You know, oh, Paul is, um, I was saved under Paul or I've heard him speak. Uh, I, and he heard Jesus on the road. You remember that? That was quite an event, right? That's pretty impressive. I, I like Paul. What about Apollos? Well, he was the second pastor of the church. And some per, perhaps bragging, well, Apollos, he's a great speaker. Paul stutters a little bit, you know. And I like Apollos. He's a better, better speaker. What about Cephas? Well, perhaps some Jews came over from Jerusalem or some of the paths that Peter was taking. Oh, just remember, Peter was one of the 12, right? He's one of the original dudes. Uh, you know, Paul came on the scene later, and Apollos was even later than that. So, you know, maybe Cephas is, he's the best dude to be behind. He was also the spokesman for the 12. He had a really bold faith and loyalty, and oh, he had such a humble heart when he, he denied the Lord and he came back to faith. And, you know, he just came back. He, he was just a great turnaround picture. And oh, he's a firsthand witness of the empty tomb. Let's not forget Peter. You know, he was there. I mean, the silly things that we can get divided about, right? Or some were saying, well, I'm of Christ. You know, they were kind of, I'm of Jesus. I forget all this stuff, you know? But they were still making a click out of it. They were still making a faction out of it. Now, Paul goes on to address, you know, this whole thing about Paul and Apollos and whatnot, but he doesn't rebuke anything about Christ. But they were still making a faction out of their claims, 
The point here is that we can have very notable teachers, very notable pastors, very noticeable or notable people who serve in the church, but we're not to be making idols of them because what we're really doing is we're losing focus on the Lord himself when we do that. Paul brings them back to this main point. He says in verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, the obvious answers to these are, no, Christ isn't divided. You are. No, Paul wasn't crucified. Jesus was. And no, you weren't baptized in you weren't baptized into any of your pastors. You were baptized into Christ. So Paul's trying to bring them back. By focusing on men and men's credentials, the church was missing the unified call of all believers to be servants of Christ in his name for his purposes. The various pastors they were clinging to were just fulfilling their role. They were just doing their calling. They were using their gifts. So recognizing the congregational unity is important and recognizing what destroys congregational unity, believers can also restore and preserve unity as a congregation by recognizing what builds congregational unity. Now, if we jump back to verse 10, the second part of it, he says that, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, the word made complete here is a Greek word, which means to get back together. It means to stitch things up. He's saying, we need to fix this. We don't need to just let it stay there. We need to do something about this, that you be complete, that you be reunited and to have the same mind means to have the same inner moral attitude. And to have the same judgment is to be determined to be of the same mind, the same reasoning, the same thinking, and deciding decisions together. It's a willful decision to keep Christ as the focus of everything that we're about. The Lord's calling and his redemption. Because we're to be like him, and which means we are to submit to his purposes. But how can we do this? I mean, we, we've already acknowledged that we're all human. We all have our differences. We're all at different stages of growth and understanding of the scriptures and the different degrees of how we know the Lord. There's, there's room for growth in all of us, including our leadership. So how are we to get there? So there are some things, of course, though, that need to be core essentials when it comes to running the local church. There are, there's a whole chapter in Romans and more about giving deference to when we disagree. And that's going to happen. There's plenty of that. But it, how is it that we handle that, right? We are told that we are supposed to guard against strange doctrines. We're told that we have to tear down vain philosophies. We're to confront these things in Colossians 2.8. And we're to be aware of wolves within even our own church, as we would hear in, in Acts 20, as Paul was in Ephesus. It's going to happen. There's going to be differences how do we deal with that? How do we get into this alignment, right? So we're to mend those things and put them back together and we understand what we're supposed to have and that is and there are key essentials that have to be brought together and we'll talk about a couple of those in a moment. But let's begin by how do we do this? The first step is that we have to adopt a practice of humility. I return to James chapter 4 verse 7 from the, where we've already read. We start in verse 7. Submit, your, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. James is addressing dissensions as well. He's, 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 we've already talked some about you know, the, the lust that's in the heart. And there are times, of course, we are to speak, as I mentioned, against bad doctrine. We're supposed to confront people. We're supposed to try to restore them to the faith. But we have to have an attitude of humility in that process. Without humility, we're nothing more than another division about to begin. That's about what that amounts to, right? Humility is taught throughout Scripture. It's the core of even coming to the faith itself. You don't come to Christ in pride. You come to him broken, convicted of your sin, knowing that you can't do anything about it. Having a teachable spirit then is also the natural outcome of humility. So we're to begin with humility, a practice of humility, and then we should commit to the unity in essential doctrines. Now Paul in Romans admits that there are things that would be left for deference, as I've mentioned, but he also has an expectation that there are key things that you're supposed to fight for, but stay unified in, such as salvation by faith alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone. The divinity of Christ, I mean the full divinity of Christ, and the full humanity of Christ, and the sufficiency of Christ, among other things. They, these are key doctrines to which we must be unified. If we don't understand them, fine, we're learning. But these things are to be core. Uh, Philippians 3.16 reminds us, I'll start in verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also in you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which you have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul gives us clear instruction here that lays out that the leadership in the church is to be structured. Uh, when he's speaking in uh, Timothy, for example, there are essential doctrines that we're supposed to have and our elders are the ones that help keep us straight on those. We also have this plurality of elders. We're supposed to be trusting in that board of elders. And 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. He's kind of trying to make the point here that, you know, they, they may not be perfect. They're growing in grace as well. But to become an elder, they've already proven that they have, are sound in doctrine, biblical doctrine. They've also proven a, a good quality character and 
uh, nature of who they are. They're not easily provoked. They carefully consider, humbly consider the spirit of God and the interpretation of his word. And yes, they're growing. They're, they're maturing as well. But they've already proven they have a track record to which we can trust. And we are to follow that. I know that even in our own eldership, there needs to be a unanimous agreement on things and there's, there's going to be dissensions. And so they take some extra time and they study and they pray about it. And if they can't get to a resolution, the couple or a few that might still be uncertain about it have already purposely agreed that they will defer so that the teaching of the church has integrity, even if they're not quite sure about it, but they won't cause any dissension about it, right? They will submit to what the elders have come up with in the leading of the Spirit. And if we're all following the Spirit as well, then agreement should be coming easier to us as well. Um, we are also have the indwelling of the Spirit. We also have the Word of God. We also have prayer. And the Lord has chosen, for some reason, to use men to accomplish His purposes. Even though He does the calling and the electing, He has chosen that we be Him, the disciples and the teachers and the servants of the rest of the body of Christ. We're reminded in 1 Timothy 3.15, I write this so that you may know that how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. God has set his mission on earth into the local body here. There are many of us, many local congregations, but each one is to have a unity and we are to embrace a one-body mindset in how we go about our business. A mindset here in which every member is a small part of a bigger body. You know, then the local bodies themselves you know, become the body of Christ, but Paul is speaking here to the local body. In 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll get to in greater detail later, so I'm just going to skip through some of the verses, starting at verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many Skipping to verse 14, but now God has placed the members, each of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And then in verse 24, we pick up where it says, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the members which were lacked, so that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if the member is honored, and all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. We are to operate as a cohesive, unified body as the church. Now as a whole, then, the local body is to restore and preserve unity as a congregation by also recognizing the priority of preaching the gospel. In verse 17, we read, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would, be not, would not be made void. Now, Paul's calling to preach is rooted in the Great Commission. Before any of the apostles founded any of the local churches outside of Jerusalem, 
The Lord had commissioned them in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You start making disciples by first preaching the gospel. Once converted, then true discipleship can happen. Paul wrote in Romans 10, now then they will call on, how will they call on them, on him who is to have I'm sorry, let me start that over. <laughs> How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings. However, did they, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, every, not every believer is an apostle. Not every believer is a preacher or a teacher. Uh, we all have different roles. But as we just read in 1 Corinthians 12, we're all different parts of the body. And we are to have a teamwork as the local church. And Paul drives this point by highlighting how he has a role and is not baptizing other believers. As we jump back to verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. Paul is basically saying it's not who you were baptized by, but who you were baptized into. Ephesians 4 describes the desired teamwork best. It says in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried around about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Local church is a teamwork thing. We all have our different parts in it. And every part needs the other parts. And we all suffer together. And we all rejoice together. But it only happens if we have unity. Again, around the core things, and then if we handle our differences in the right way, we can maintain that unity. So by way of application, number one, Unity in the local church is to be a priority for all believers. This is not an optional. It's a mandate. Number two, unity in the local church affects the effectiveness of its impact in the community. It only takes one bad egg to spoil the whole bunch, right? We are a recipe, if you will, for the gospel. We are here to work together. Thirdly, unity in the local church requires everyone's humility and submission to the word, the spirit, and the leadership Differences are to be handled in a discreet manner through that leadership. 
Fourthly, unity in the local church requires everyone's focus on the higher cause of Christ. When we lose this focus, things will start to unravel. And then fifthly, perhaps there's someone you need to go back to. Perhaps you have said something. Perhaps you have insinuated insinuated something and you have started a new cause, even though maybe you've pulled out of it. They're continuing with that thought. Go nip that in the bud. Just ask for forgiveness and just, if you have a difference, start taking it through the leadership of the men that God has put in place in the church. I'll close then with with a summary from Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of calling, which you have been called to, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So let's apply the grace that God has given us, the the great resources that we have with his spirit and what he has put into us for heavenly hope. And let's make sure that we serve it together in unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example that you've set and we, we are so grateful for that high calling that you have called us to, to be one with you and to be one as even you are with the Father. This is unimaginable. It's unattainable, actually, in the flesh, but because of your spirit, we all can grow in that direction. Lord, help us to be keenly aware of where our thoughts and our differences and maybe just curiosities could be said in the wrong way that might cause a start a division. Lord, help us to always live with love, with a big hope of who you are and what your purposes are, that we might not falter in this. We pray this in Jesus' name.